Hello everybody, my name is Timo Borenslav. I'm a director of an awesome film about the Nazis from the dark side of the moon called Iron Sky. And you are listening to Genretainment. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Genretainment right here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. This is your host Marks, and I'll be joined by Julie here in just a few minutes for the interview. Today we're speaking with London writer and filmmaker Robert Grant about his new book, Writing the Science Fiction Film. Now, Grant gives us tips on how to write good science fiction, and we explore what made classic sci-fi films so successful. Now, before we get to the interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend Tishon Hardy. Now, you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get started with our interview with Robert Grant. Listen to Genretainment, and this is Marks and Julie. And today we're speaking with London filmmaker, screenwriter, critic, and script consultant Robert Grant about his new book, Writing the Science Fiction Film. So, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Can you tell your audiences what they can expect from your new book? Okay, so um, basically, it's about how to write a science fiction film, and it's about getting the science right, but getting it just right enough. It's not about being prescriptive and making sure that you write a, you know, a physics thesis when you do it, right. but it's about making sure that when you get the science right, it's at the very least plausible and feasible, and that it's coherent in such a way that it makes sense. Right. Um, I watch too many science fiction films where there are these giant leaps of faith or things just don't make sense at all. And it was really about that, but it's also, about how it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg to make science fiction. You can make what I call quiet science fiction films, um, and often they're the better science fiction films around. Um, you don't have to have a blockbuster budget. You don't have to have millions and millions of dollars. You can do things on a shoestring that are way more interesting that quite often is happening in, in, in the blockbusters at your sort of local multiplex. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little bit about the science. So what, what is one thing that you feel, whether it's science or something else, that is a big mistake that often happens in bad sci-fi. Well, in bad sci-fi, they do. Th- I mean, the, the, the obvious one is and one one that nobody has ever really cracked is time travel. Uh, first of all, you know, there's it doesn't exist, so you have to kind of make it up. But there are a lot of good theories about how it might work, but nobody's ever really cracked the whole paradox of science fiction. Um, they and and they run into trouble over and over and over again uh, trying to do so. Uh, Looper did a fairly credible take on it recently, but they did it by basically tipping the hat towards the fact that there's always going to be these paradoxes and saying, look, let's not bother about it, otherwise we're just going to go round and round in circles, <laughs> which is a cheat, but at the same time it kind of works and I can forgive them for that. But that's that's one thing. But one of my favorite kind of and I, you know, it's a science fiction film for me is Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing with Back to the Future is in order for time travel to work, you have to get this souped up DeLorean has to travel at 88 miles an hour. And at while it's traveling 88 miles an hour, you have to deliver 1.21 gigawatts of power into the flux capacitor at exactly 88 miles an hour for time travel to happen. Now. It happens in in 1984. 
five, whatever it is. And then when he travels back in time to the 50s, in order to get the car to travel back in, in time again, he still has to get it to go 88 miles an hour and deliver 1.21 gigawatts of, of energy into the flux capacitor at exactly the right time in order for time travel to work. Right. Total nonsense. And it's, you know, utterly, you know, unfeasible, but <laughs> consistent within the boundaries of its own world. Mm -hmm makes sense that you have to get the right amount of power into this part of the car to deliver the power that will make it go forward in time forward and backward in time and it's the same coherence and the same structure in both in the 50s and in the 80s they don't sort of go well in the 50s it's really hard to get plutonium so what we'll do is we'll make it so that you can get a horse to tow it really fast or something mm -hmm. like that what they do is they make it work and that's that's for me is good science in in movies in as much if it's plausible in the confines of its own film, um, it makes sense and it's logical and it's consistent and it's coherent. And I, and I, you know, I like that. You know, the fact that it's utter nonsense is kind of neither here nor there. The, but the, the, it does work in within the confines of its own film. Yeah. And we're not, you know, they're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to add an extra element to it. They're not trying to say, well, okay, what we'll do is we'll bring down aliens who suddenly give him a crystal that he can add into it to make it go at the right speed. It's not, they haven't done any of that stuff. And that's what's great about that as a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. If you're going to do something like time travel, you know, obviously there aren't any hard and fast set rules. So set them for your world and then be consistent within your world. Absolutely. And I think that's the key because... Oftentimes, it's the time travel stuff. I, I just I don't like it when a show tries to do a TV show tries to do time travel. Very often, I mean, there are exceptions. Like I love Doctor Who, but it's not trying to take it too seriously. It's like eh, it's possible because he's the Doctor. If he says it's not possible, it's because he says so, and then you move on. They're not trying to bog it down with too much, and they don't expect you to go, oh, that makes complete sense. <laughs> so exactly. it works in that world. But I've had issues before whenever, you know, you're watching a TV show, and it, you know, it's science fiction, but it doesn't deal with time travel. And then suddenly they're like, we're going to do time travel, and we're going to do it right. And then you watch it, and it's like, oh, it's making my head hurt. They're getting so many things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or they have so many inconsistencies. It's like, just create a world where it doesn't have to make sense. For this world, it happens. This is how it happens, and we're just going to keep it that way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think the same thing goes for... There are things that people try and introduce into science fiction films because they think they're science fictional. A, a classic is robots. People try and add robots into science fiction films because they think robots are kind of cool and science fiction-y. And what they don't really understand is why you have robots in science fiction films, why robots work or don't work in science fiction films. And it's because when you introduce robots, what you're really doing is, is you're using robots to hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, you know, this is, we're looking at ourselves through the eyes of this other thing, or else we're examining our own behavior by looking at the behavior of this robot. And there's a reason for having robots in films, whether it's, you know, I robot or whether it's Robbie the robot, what you're doing is you're using it to hold up that mirror. And a lot of people don't kind of understand that in terms of how all science fiction really is about the present day. And what they do is they think, well, we'll add in a cool spaceship and we'll add in a robot because of a robot sidekick and that'll be science fiction and that's science fiction for all the wrong reasons i think like data from star trek next generation mm -hmm. that seemed to be well because we got to examine what what makes us human how our emotions work 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I get yeah because he because uh, because he's he's at the, as at the same time as he's trying to explore his own, for want of a better word, humanity. You know, even though he's not, while he's trying to explore that within himself, what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to to the humans on the ship and saying, "This is what you guys are like." You know, and you know we can look at it and we can say, "Well, actually, we're being really stupid. We shouldn't do that kind of thing." Usually. Um, or we're saying, actually, this is a really good thing about being us. This is something that we're, we're proud that we do. We behave in this way. Mm-hmm. So what first sparked your interest in science fiction? What, what led you down this, this path? Uh, I blame Neil Armstrong, personally. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I was, I, was a, I was a little kid and um, I was allowed to stay up late because, bearing in mind, I'm in the UK, and uh, watch the moon landings, uh, watch, watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon for the first time. And, and for me, that was like... You know, I'd been reading, you know, Tom Swift and stuff like that as a, as a kid, which is not the greatest science fiction in the world. But, you know, as a kid, you read what, what excites you and what's, what you know, really gets your imagination going. Right. And then when that happened, it was like, wow, you know, we, we can actually do, we can actually travel through people actually travel through space. It's their job. They, they have a job where they get to get in a spaceship and go somewhere else. And of course... At the time, all the talk was, well, we're going to go to Mars and then we're going to travel to Venus and we're going to do this and we're going to explore the galaxies. And, you know, in 30 years time, we'll have, we'll have done all this stuff. And of course, it hasn't happened. But at the time, it was so exciting. And, and, and obviously, there was a, a huge kind of kind of spark in terms of films to do with space travel and so on and so forth following that. And of course, it all just fueled my imagination and fueled my love for it. And it's never really gone away because... As you get, I mean, science fiction is such a broad church that as you get older, you realise that there's more to science fiction than, than spaceships and robots and so on and so forth. And, and there's a lot more, there's a lot more depth to it. And as you start to explore further, and you you find, you know, the cool authors, the authors that are kind of slightly off the wall, and the the, the other things that are going on, and the films that are the indie films that are never going to be on at your multiplex and so on and so forth. You can you can you realise that actually it's got a lot to say science fiction about the state of the world about the state of us about the way we do things and about things that we should be looking out for things that we should be preparing for mm-hmm. yeah it's a good way to remove people from the current situation to talk about the social ills of society without it can be a little less offensive you know if you're if you're wanting to talk about issues about race or sex or or sexual identity or things like this you know setting it in this world you're going to automatically sort of maybe rub people the wrong way, but if you remove them from the current situation, then it gives them a chance to talk about the, and think about the idea rather than the details. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that um, one of the beauties of science fiction is, is that it allows you to, to talk about uh, an injustice or or a a situation that, that is wrong. And it allows you to say, look at this, it's wrong. Look at what's happening, but without actually pointing fingers at any individual or any, or any society or any, government or any corporation and, and, and directly pointing fingers and naming them but it does allow you to to really call them out I mean, it's no it's no surprise that that um to soviet russia spawned a lot of really good science fiction because when you're living in or, or eastern europe really spawned a lot of good science fiction because when you're living in an oppressive regime you need to find a way to get people to talk about this stuff and you need to find a way of holding up uh, a flag and raising a flag and, and saying you know do you people know what's going on but of course you can't point directly to the regime and say look at what they did mm-hmm. so you find a way of doing it and science fiction has, has been brilliant for that for a lot of reasons uh-huh. Yeah. 
before the show started, we were talking a little bit about your background, and you told me how you started with books and then kind of went into script writing. I was Sorry. wondering a little bit about the differences between you know the structure and approach of trying to write a book versus a movie or TV show. Well, there's a lot of similarities in terms of creative writing. You know, you you need to you need to have an idea, you need to flesh it out, turn it into a plot. You need to have a character. That character needs to arc, and the, the you know it's never normally about you know you never normally have just one character. You have several characters, and it's how they work. The difference, obviously, between the two is that you know in a book you can have a guy sitting thinking about something that happened you know five years ago. And it can be interesting and all that kind of stuff. But in a screenplay, someone sitting around thinking about something that happened five years ago is a guy standing there on his own, staring into space, doing nothing. And that's not very filmic. So uh, screenplays, you have to strip a lot of that kind of stuff away and you get right to the meat of it. I found uh, writing writing fiction is it's very gratifying in lots of ways. I, I, you know, I still love to do it. But writing screenplays is a much more exacting science. And it's I, I personally find it much more rewarding at the end of it because it it is much harder work you can't ramble and you can't you know you have to pair everything right back and and it's a it's a real challenge but once you get into it and once you once you kind of once you, you once you're hooked on it you'll find that it's for me personally it's much more rewarding uh in, in its in its own way so i think it's a very very rewarding thing to do but that was my kind of entry in it was you know because i live in you know i've lived most of my life in and around london we don't make films. We don't have a film industry. We have a film industry, but not like the, the difference between, I think, the US and the UK. When I was a kid, anyway, when I was kind of looking to go to college and so on, was if you told people in the US you wanted to work in the film industry, they kind of knew it was an industry and they knew that there were jobs and you could start off in the postroom and work your way up. Or if you were lucky, you went to film school and you got jobs and you, you, you made contacts and so on and so forth. But it's a job. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll make it, you'll, make, you'll do good. And if you're not so lucky, you won't. But you'll, you, you know, you, at least you've had an education and you'll find a home within it. In the UK, so tell someone you want to work in films, they think it's some kind of dodge or ruse. And that what you're doing is actually trying to find a way of not actually doing any work. Well, that's and actually similar to a lot of places of the country in the US outside of LA. <laughs> I, 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 possibly, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, uh, I've only visited really kind of the big centers in, in the US. So maybe I'm missing that bit in the middle. But um, but that's kind of it. That's the difference. And also, because we don't have we're not geared up, we don't have big studios and we're not geared up in that kind of same way for making for the making of films. Yeah. It's very difficult for someone to see how you're ever going to get a job. It's changed a lot. And these days it's a completely different thing. But when I was a kid, it was different. But you could be an author. You could write books. You know, you could you could you could draw. You could, at least you could try. Um, and and so when I was much younger, there were a lot of magazines and you could you could you could publish short fiction and so on and so forth. And you could not make a great living, but you could make a living. It's a different world now, but that's kind of how I that that was why when I, when I was much younger, it wasn't like I really want to be a screenwriter because it just wasn't on my radar. I mean, it just was not on my radar. And I have really Sci-Fi London to thank for pointing out that actually the world's come on a long way. And and that the Sci-Fi London Film Festival 12 years ago when it first started was the thing that sort of showed to me, wow, there's all these people out there making movies and it can be done. And so now I can actually take the, the, the knowledge that I have and the things I can apply it in a different way. Yeah. Well, what is the health of the independent science fiction film community in, in the UK? 
Uh, right now, it's excellent. I mean, this this past weekend, it was the uh, we at Sci-Fi London. Uh, every year, we have a forty-eight hour film challenge. Um, this weekend was that forty-eight hour film challenge. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to take part because I'm one of the organisers. But um, but we had three hundred and around about three hundred teams register for the right. event. I think two. I think two hundred and sorry, two hundred and thirty-eight or something actually showed up on the day. Um, and um, and the final films came in at one o'clock, and there's probably around 160, 170 completed five-minute films done in 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is where the this is where the judging starts and the hard work begins. But um, it just goes to show that there are an enormous number of very, very hardworking and dedicated people who are into science fiction and want to make movies. And of course, you know the quality is going to vary amongst the, all of those films. But there are always some absolutely outstanding and smashing films in there that that um, that that go on and do well. Three years ago, the guy that won was Gareth Edwards, who went on to make Monsters, okay. uh, and he he got the funding to make Monsters off the back of winning our forty-eight hour film challenge. You know, kind of said to the to Vertigo, it was the um, the production company. You know, they said, "Well, you managed to make this film in forty-eight hours with no money." what could you do if we gave you three weeks and a few thousand pounds and he went away and made monsters and now he's directing Godzilla. So, mm-hmm. so kind of three years ago doing a short film in, in over a weekend to try and make some money to now he's directing Godzilla. It's obviously his story is more complex than that, but it's, uh, it just goes to show that, uh, that I think there's, it's rude health at the moment. Oh, that's a really good story. Yeah. Is that 40 hour contest? Is it all sci-fi? Yeah, it's because it, we are a sci-fi film festival. So for us, over the last three or four years, we've fostered through the 48 Hour Film Challenge. We've fostered, I think, something like 700, seven or eight hundred short science fiction films, and they're all available online. You can go watch them. Um, you know, for us, it's about getting filmmakers interested in making science fiction, getting filmmakers interested in knowing that science fiction doesn't have to cost the earth to make and. You can do an enormous amount if you put your mind to it with no money uh, and just you know a lot of imagination. Right. Um, and ultimately, what we want is to get people to make science fiction feature films. That's really what what we're uh, what we're aiming for is to get people to take that next leap and to go and make a feature film. Because uh, as a film festival, a science fiction film festival, we uh, we want people to make films because we want to show them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you this question because I ask this like everyone that's from the UK we ever talk to. <laughs> Why are British TV shows always so short? <laughs> One word, money, I think. Uh, I, I guess it's, it's it, yeah, I mean, it really does come down to money. I think it's, um, you know, we don't have anything like the budgets that, that you have in, in the US for TV. And and I think the other thing is that... Um, that, so, so it means that our shows are, are, or our series generally are quite short. Our shows are, you know, usually around about an hour, yeah. if they're any good. But um, but there's, yeah. the seasons are short. There's six six episodes or eight episodes. Yeah, the, yeah. the shorter seasons or, or series. Yeah, yeah it's funny because we, we watch quite a bit, really, of um, British television, you know, genre mostly. And, and uh, it's just, I'm like, oh, man, I like it. But sometimes I have a hard time getting back to it because it's, you know, we watch six episodes and you got a year or it may not come back at all. And then it's, oh, it's hard to get into it sometimes, yeah. no matter how good it is, because we'll watch something. I love Doctor Who. And then it'll be a new one. And I'm like, I don't remember anything that happened there towards the end. I mean, like with the end of the ponds, you know, I did. But 
there'll be stuff and I go, I don't remember that. That was a year ago. What's that talking about again? <laughs> I think really is it's about it's about money and it's about, you know, can we is this something that we can syndicate? Can we make a bunch of money and yeah. uh, enough to you know keep it going? And a lot of that stuff is done by the BBC. Um, and obviously, the BBC is funded differently. It's a public service broadcaster. It's funded through the light through the through the TV license in this country, um, and it's the only way it's funded, uh, pretty much. Well, not the only way, but it's the the, the major way. And so their remit is not that they have to make a massive profit on everything. You know, they want to make a profit, but they don't have to make a profit on it because that's not the remit. So what they do is they allocate a certain amount in the budget to the popular shows, Doctor Who, for instance, and and then they have to allocate a certain amount to documentaries and to news and to everything else. And that's the way it's divvied up. And there isn't like, you know, a bunch of investors sitting in the wings who say, look, we're prepared to put 20 million pounds into this and, uh, and, and, and make a 24 episode seat thing because it doesn't it doesn't work in that way. It's slightly different with, you know, the um, the ITV and Channel 4, the kind of the commercial networks. But even then, it's more it's about it really is about money. It's about, you know, can we afford to spend X million pounds of our budget making this? Um, and when we don't even know whether we, there's a market for it anywhere else. And so so sometimes things creep up in episodes, but not very much. And it, that, I think that's really what it boils down to at the end of the day. Do you think that's at the heart of the reason, you know, the cast and a British show tends to be much more of a revolving door than you generally will find in television shows in America? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be like, it's a hit show and they're doing great and suddenly announce one actor or actress or two of them, oh, they don't or want to come back. like being human, what happened, the whole cast yeah, is Yeah, the whole now. cast is gone or, you know, I mean, there seems to be, even not in genre shows, seems to, actors and actresses seem to be much more willing or even interested in walking away from commercial successes. Um, I think it's because, I think, it, once again, that's down to... Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of that's down to kind of, you know, it's it's budgets and everything else is once you've had some commercial success, if they're only offering you the same money as you've had for the last two seasons and somebody else comes along and says, I've got another show for you and I want you to be the star and I'm prepared to double your money. Mm. You know, who's not going to say no to that, really? Yeah. So 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 that's part of it. And I think the other thing is. Um, you know, a lot of the time I blame you guys because, because <laughs> everybody seems... blames us for everything. Go ahead. <laughs> no, we, we get these, we have these actors and they're great. And you think, wow, oh, this guy's really doing, doing well and et cetera, et cetera. And then the next, you know, he turns up and he's on, you know, some, some cop show over there and you know, good luck to them. They're doing really well and all that kind of stuff. But it's a shame because it is a bit of a drain, uh, that's kind of talent drain, if you like, for us. Uh, yeah, know. that could happen too. Yeah. See, I, I'm always curious though, because I know, you know, the BBC gets their funding from from the people primarily, but but then they have BBC America, and they have you know they might put something on Sci Fi Channel, and I wonder how much extra money they're getting from something like that, and yeah. how how that affects everything. Um, I'm to be honest, I'm really not sure how it affects because you know at the end of the day they also sell DVD, you know, DVDs and box sets and and all that kind of stuff, and there is merchandising and so on and so forth. So you have to ask yourself how much of that is going in back into the BBC coffers and how much of that is going into the coffers of the production company who may own the rights or, or, or so on and so forth, you know, that's yeah. or going into the showrunner's pocket or whatever. So well, I, mean, I, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to hazard a guess. It's but just I such a completely different business model, really. Yeah, I, mean, I, I imagine a lot of that, that money isn't actually making its way back into the, into the BBC. Huh. I'm going to blame it on Downton Abbey. 
It's taking all the money. No! <laughs> He's doing that because I love Downton Abbey and he loves to tease me. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, the, uh, I'm probably the only Englishman in existence who's never seen an episode of Downton Abbey. Oh, really? I, I figured it was probably um, a lot of people there probably don't watch it. And, for, you know, sometimes something takes off more outside of the country and you just no, sort of can't I, explain it and it's not what you expected. I think it's, no, it's it's huge over here. It's oh. absolutely huge. But my, my issue with it is not that I don't want to watch it or anything. It's, it's purely and simply this. I missed the first couple of episodes of the first season and I kept thinking, well, I'll catch up. And I just never did. Um, so now I don't really want to watch it when it's halfway through. My, <laughs> yeah. wife keeps, my wife keeps telling me, no, no, you've really got to watch it from the beginning. And I, you know, I, it's finding the time to sit down and kind of do that. Well, not necessarily. All of the that I want to watch. Yeah, not necessarily. I started watching it actually in the second season or series. And, um, I watched it, but then I got towards the end and I deliberately didn't watch like the last one or two episodes of, you know, that, that season. I started watching it part of the way through the second season, kind of watched it. So then I made myself stop and go back and start watching the first. And I've watched the first season and I'm almost caught up in the second season. And then I'm just going to go from there, but I could catch on to what was going on. I think that I appreciate more of what I watch now after having watched it from the beginning, but I was able to, to jump in. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't suppose it's, it, I think it's like everything. If I really, really wanted to watch it, I'd find the time and the means yeah. of doing it at the moment. It doesn't really, um, you know, there's a million and one other things I'd rather watch. There's, we get that a lot. People tell us, I can't believe you haven't watched that show. And it's like, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and I can't spend all of them watching television. <laughs> so Much as maybe like in a to. few years I'll get around to the, the now, DVD box set. Now if they put aliens in there, I'm in. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm curious, What's uh, since you're an avid science fiction fan and critic, uh, what's one of your favorite sci-fi of each category, TV show, movie, and book? Oh wow, uh, that's that's such a huge question. Um, <laughs> and it, to be honest, you know, if I could, t I'll tell you something now, and tomorrow it will change um, because I'll remember something that I couldn't remember today. Um, so uh, just to, well, I'll give you a couple of couple of recent things. Um, so uh, the shortlist for the Arthur C. Clarke Award was recently announced, which is the it's the most prestigious science fiction award in the UK. Mm -hmm. and there's a couple of books on that, but one in particular called The Dog Stars by Peter Heller, which is a fabulous, fabulous book. It's a post-apocalyptic uh, novel. It's set kind of 30, 40 years after there's been a kind of um, viral in a pandemic and most of the population of Earth is dead. But it's a very quiet book and it's a very measured book and it's got a lot of when you're reading it, it's, there's a feeling of a lot of space. Um, and it's a for me, it was a fabulous read, a really, really good book. Um, so, you know, re, you know, of the kind of recent books that springs immediately to mind. I mean, if you want to go back and back and back, I mean, you know, we could go on forever. But but, um, you know, I've read. You know all the kind of classics, the Asimovs and the Heinleins, and the you know, and it, there, there's so many you could just pull out of the bag. So, but I'm not one of those guys, you know, in life or in science fiction. I'm not one of those guys who constantly looks back and reminisces. I'm one of these guys who constantly looks forward and says, "What's the new thing? What's the new thing?" 
I listen to new music. I watch new TV shows. And I don't constantly go back and watch old movies. I like to watch new movies. So, so for me, it's more about what's happening now. Right. Uh, TV shows, I guess, kind of looking. I mean, I was a huge fan of Fringe and really disappointed when it finished. I could have watched that show forever. Uh, it was so off the wall in places. It was bizarre. Um, there was there were times I had absolutely no idea what was going on, but I found it riveting to watch. Um, so, uh, so, so I was a huge fan of that. Movie-wise, though, recently, I mean, over recent years, I guess uh, I, I, I do like the um, I do like the the kind of comic book stuff uh, in terms of movies. So I'm a big fan of the Iron Mans and the Avengers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, it's one of those things that I get to go with my son to those things because he's a huge fan. And he's really into the whole, it has to be on canon and it has to be, you know, <laughs> way more than I am about that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, he, he I, I get to go to that stuff with him. So I'm a big fan of those kind of things. But I like, um, you know, we've had films on like, um, we had a really interesting film on last year, which called, which was called Ghosts with Shit Jobs. Um, <laughs> you can check all this stuff out at the festival because all of the previous year's festival websites are kind of archived for people to look at. But basically, it's about um, it's a kind of pseudo documentary, and it's about people who from the West who who basically have these jobs where they 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 work is in in service to people in the East, and they don't really exist as as people because they don't really have any they have little in the way of rights or or any of that kind of stuff, and um and they just kind of do they do all the jobs that nobody else really wants to do because they have to. It's the only jobs they can get. And um, and that was a really interesting film. But we've had, you know, we've had premieres of all sorts of stuff. I like things like Primer, which was uh, an interesting, it's, it's a film that's, I think it's much more interesting to watch than it is entertaining, because it's one of those films that will leave you kind of sitting there going, what, after it? Uh, and I've liked things like Ever Since the World Ended, which was uh, another kind of found footage thing, which was... Um, once again, very quiet, post-apocalyptic type thing. Had one special effect shot in the entire film, which was a matte painting of the Golden Gate Bridge having kind of collapsed slightly into the sea. And the rest of it was just shot in and around San Francisco. And it was it was an incredible little film that, that deserved a much wider audience than I think it got. Things like Confederate States of America, CSA, um, which was it kind of an alternate, hist- an alternate history where... The South won the American Civil War and there was still slavery in the USA and so on. And those those kind of films are really interesting to me. It, you know, so I, I like the blockbuster stuff. I can, you know, I can sit back and eat my popcorn and enjoy that kind of thing really, really well. But the other stuff, the stuff that's kind of closer to home, that's set maybe 20, 30, 40 years into the future, what they kind of call mundane sci-fi. I find that equally as interesting because it's much more about, you know, us and how we behave and how we behave to each other. Right. It's a little closer for the social commentary element. It's yeah. a little bit closer to reality, a little bit easier to interpret than than Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> that was anything wrong with Although Klingons are cool. I wonder how to say Klingons are cool and Klingon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking about the two chapters in the book uh, earlier about getting the science right. So could you tell us about the chapters a little bit more and about like one show or movie that got it right and one that got it also wrong. Uh, well, let's talk because it's about writing the science fiction film. Let's talk about films because I think that's probably probably uh, an easier way to go. So you can write hard science fiction. You can write soft science fiction. Hard science fiction is really science fiction that's based around the hard sciences. It's physics, chemistry, biology. If you're going to write that kind of stuff and you're going to deal in 
medical technology or you're going to deal in in uh, space travel or, or no, you, you kind of need to know your stuff because people will tear it apart piece by piece and if it doesn't hold up you'll be called out for it yeah it's the soft sciences the soft sciences are the social sciences it's the it's the psychology and and humanities and you know history and so on and so forth and that stuff is slightly more woolly because it's more about um behavior and how people act it's much more about the the social fabric and the social makeup of society than 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 the higher science stuff is and that's stuff that kind of is is in a lot of ways much more interesting but um i'll talk about star wars so star wars and the force is one of those things that i have a love-hate relationship with star wars it's great fun and I love it and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there are so many things about it that irritate me beyond belief. Uh, so, uh, and I talk about this in the book. Um, in uh, in Star Wars uh, Episode One, in the Phantom Menace, um, Liam Neeson sort of sits there and says he's uh, uh, quite Gonjin pipes up and he says he's talking about midi chlorians that. Um, uh, without midichlorians, life couldn't exist. We could have no knowledge of the Force. They continually speak to us. They tell us the will of the Force. And when you learn to quiet your mind, you will hear them speaking to you. And I sat there and I thought, excuse me? Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Uh, because, I mean, it's ludicrous and it's unnecessary in terms of a piece of exposition, but it's also completely contradictory to what we had previously been told about the Force. Yes. It really <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is a pet peeve of Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> Well, Kenobi says the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. A Jedi can feel the force flying through him and obviously therefore can manipulate it. Now that, despite being obviously ludicrous and, and ridiculous, kind of makes sense. I can get my head around that. It's, uh, you know, it's a force that binds the universe together. And if you can tune into it, you can manipulate it. And I can, I can, I can understand that, and I can, I can give you that. You know, I'm, I'm prepared to give you a buy on that one. But midi chlorians is kind of like, you know, they're these things. These, they're the what? They're the little things that are, they're in you. I don't, you know, I don't get that. And you can measure them. You have lots of midi chlorians, or you don't have any midi chlorians. And that's the kind of, that's the stuff that's in, suddenly instead of the force being like an energy field created by all living things. It's a microscopic life form that you know that's found in all of us, and I just don't get that. And it, it's like a bacteria now, suddenly. <laughs> now become kind of it's turned what was slightly mystical. You know, it's a force that flows through all living things, and you know you can tune into it, and manipulate it. That's slightly mystical, but you can buy it into something that is now it's science. It's about these living things that that live in all of us, and you can you know. And and the science doesn't really work because because I'm sitting there going, well, how does it how does that work? How does a Jedi hear them speaking? Why why can why can't the non Jedi hear them? Or is it that the non Jedi can hear them? They just choose to ignore them. And you know because it's a lot of training being a Jedi. And you know how does that help me lift a crashed X wing out of a swamp? You know I don't. <laughs> what I'm saying is they've taken what was a perfectly plausible. Slightly mystical, but kind of you could get you could buy it as an explanation. Tried to turn it into science, and they've done a really really bad job of it. Yeah, um, you know we all know who I'm talking about, and he's got. <laughs> it was almost a throwaway line, wasn't it? It's a very 
controversial throwaway line, but they didn't yeah. like follow up. They never yeah. like a normal science fiction story would play a little bit more with that and be like, oh, the Metaclorians, but then they can like well, do whatever. I, I don't understand because it's not like anyone who is a Star Wars fan wasn't buying the original explanation. You know, it had been, it'd been like more, almost like a, it'd been like a quarter decade. People were cool with it. We're, we're like, yep, that's the force. We like it. And suddenly they make it sound like if you could just go buy a Metaclorian um, a probiotic <laughs> treatment, suddenly you could be a Jedi. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, they did exactly the wrong thing. They had a perfectly plausible explanation that everybody loved, and then they just ruined it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And they shouldn't have done and it's kind of, I mean, there's, I mean, that's bad science, but there's also, because it's a tricky balancing act, because the science doesn't matter if it's of no importance to what goes on. You know, there's, there are some things that, you know, it, it really doesn't, I mean, you know, I mentioned Back to the Future, and it remains a great example of, you know, sort of a cursory and vague explanation of the science. But Contact, 1997 Contact with um, Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. Um, I love you know, that. Extraterrestrial, I love it. I think it's a great film. Extraterrestrials send a radio signal to Earth and encoded within are the blueprints for building a craft that will carry one person, uh, you know, within it to, to, to we presume, them. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, wrangling and, and Jodie Foster gets the chance to travel in it and, and to cut long story short, it has a kind of short encounter with an alien being. Um, but as a, as a film... Despite the fact there's a lot of, you know, building a spaceship in it and there's all kinds of other stuff, the film barely mentions science throughout it. It's really the social sciences. It's about, it talks about religion and it's about um, society and it's about what does this mean for us? Where, where do we now stand as a, a, as a people? What, how does knowing that there's another race out there, how does that affect us and our thinking about ourselves? And it, it's really about that. Um, and... And the science is, you know, it's practically non-existent and ultimately no one cares because thematically the movie is great for the things that it does do. You know, the key word I, key word I, I come back to time and again in the book is, is it's feasible. The science has to be feasible. If it isn't real, then either it isn't mentioned at all because it's of no importance to the story or it has to make absolute sense within the parameters of the world that you're building so that it can feasibly exist. And... You know, the average filmmaking audience is not comprised of, of Nobel Prize winning scientists. It's, you know, postmen and bookkeepers and teachers and tattoo artists and web developers and everyone else. And the, the few cutting edge scientists that do make it to see your movie, you know, they're probably not going to go on to Rotten Tomatoes or whatever and, and kind of, you know, tell everybody how bad your science is. They're just not going to bother. They're just going to tell their mates at work. Um, and then they'll all go and see it anyway because they can all laugh at you, you know, at your <laughs> You know, and 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 if, and if you do annoy a couple of scientists, so what? You know, you're not a scientist; you're a writer. You know, and on the bright side, you've just been introduced to a perfect, you know, sort of research source for your next screenplay, as I you know, kind of say in the book. You know, you should do your best to to hang on to any scientists that you do meet. So when you do need to know something, you've got someone you can ring up. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's then then there's the kind of lazy science stuff uh, which I talk about, which is you know, Avatar's got lots of lazy science in it. Um, you know, there is a book called The Science of Avatar, which I have lurking around in a library somewhere, um, which I've never bothered to read. But you know, the lazy science is the whole thing. You know, there's this stuff called unobtainium because it's really hard to get hold of. That <laughs> <laughs> is, it's just lazy. A, a, a better example would be, you know. If you had a if you had a bunch of humans suddenly magicked up to a to a, a you know an alien planet somewhere, and one guy turns around and says, "Well, how do you make interplanetary travel work?" 
And if you're doing the kind of correct science, you'd have one of your aliens turn around and say, well, I'm glad you asked. You know, let me start by showing you our means of propulsion that allows us to bring this ship so close to the speed of light. And then, you know, you talk about time dilation and hyperspace theory and uh, navigating galactic movements and the Alcubierre drive and all those kind of things. It's unlikely to happen in a screenplay, but you, you get my drift. You'd have proper science in there. Right. Uh, if you were just writing the right kind of science, you'd say something like, you know, burning the raw imaginatium ore produces vast amounts of energy and we can harness that energy to power our ships. And that's kind of plausible enough to get away with it. And then if you're doing lazy science, you'd say, you know, our scientists invented the warp drive thousands of years ago and we have now, and we have traveled the galaxy ever since. So, so you'd, you know, you'd do something like that. That's the kind of lazy way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek at least tries to explain it. It's all, you know, mumble jumble terminology, but at least they... It they sounds have their like own, it's possible. Their own terminology that they just pretty much consistently use. <laughs> they did. They, Star Trek made an absolute art of of actually not explaining things. You know, they you know they have things. You know, science bit kind of goes here. Techno babble goes here. Was or Trekno babble as they called it. it, became a very famous uh, kind of thing where they it would just be in the screenplay somewhere. It would say Trekno babble goes here, and they got so good at it they could sit there and and they could actually you know they could actually just turn it on uh, and just say stuff and it would sound great a lot of the time. And it wasn't written in any kind of script. They just got really good at doing it. Uh, <laughs> I find that fascinating. It's just, it is just brilliant. Yeah. It is. It's like, it was like the TV show Spartacus. After we watched Spartacus, we start, we went to talk in Spartacus speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really work in real life. It doesn't. No. no. <laughs> I'm interested by the London International Festival. Can you tell us a little bit more about it when it takes place every year? It's the it's actually officially the London International Festival of Science Fiction and Fantastic Film. And we call it Sci-Fi London, which is much easier to say. It's sci-fi-london.com is the website. And it's been going for 12 years. And we are kind of... Uh, Louis Savvy, who's the festival director and one of my closest friends, started the festival 12 years ago. And that's how I kind of got roped in because pretty much anything he does, I end up getting roped in somewhere down the line. But it was kind of like there wasn't a, a science fiction film festival in London. I'm going to start one. And I was like, OK. And he did, to his credit. And it's been going for 12 years now. And it's the science fiction film festival for people who think they don't like science fiction. Um, we show films from all around the world. We show pretty much mostly new films, a lot of um, world premieres, a lot of European premieres and UK premieres. And it's stuff that you really are not going to, you're not going to see this stuff anywhere else generally. And mostly in a good way, <laughs> you know, um, but it's documentaries. It's obviously a lot of, a lot of um, feature films, but it's also documentaries and, and, uh, and a big, big short film um, a program every year. And then there's workshops and, um, and there's uh, talks and Q and A's and panels and all the usual things that go along with a film festival. And, um, and it happens for 10 days uh, over the period of um, kind of April, May. Mm -hmm. This year is, so the Stratford Picture House for anyone who happens to be in London uh, and also at the BFI in London, uh, which is, um, you know, it's the best cinema in the country in terms of, you know, equipment quality. It's full 4K projection and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got a lot of good stuff on. Fantastic. Now you're a, a jury on the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction and Literature, mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting. Uh, I was wondering... Can you tell our listeners a little bit about like what your responsibility as a jury is and what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, 
literature, you know, win these type of awards? So the Arthur C. Clarke Award, as I said before, it's the most prestigious genre award in the UK, or science fiction genre award in the UK. And um, uh, and as a juror, essentially, or, or a member of the jury, what you what you do is you read an awful lot of books in a short space of time. Um, this year, there was, I think, 82 submissions in total. We had to read them in five months, and then you have to whittle it down to a short list of six. Uh, and then from there, you choose eight. Um, the criteria are fairly loose. It has to be science fiction. Um, but beyond that, it really is about what are the, what's the story that, that stayed, what are the stories that have stayed with you? What's the stuff that's moved you in some way? Um, it's not just about, is it, um, you know, is, has it got the best science or is it the most futuristic and that stuff? It's really it's about a story. It's a holistic thing. And the criteria are basically which are the books that you read that stayed right with you. And it's, um, it's really difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Because it's so hard to sit there and at, at the end of the day to sit there and say, you know, you've got two books, both of which are equally brilliant and you've only got one space left on the shortlist and you're sitting there going, you know, can I, can I just put this one over this one and why? And, and then you've got, you know, somebody else on the jury who doesn't agree with either of them has their own one they want to put in and you have to kind of, it really is fun fight about, you know what are the what are the criteria that make this better book than that one in this given year for this given slot? Right. Um, and there's, there's an awful lot of stuff that you look at and you think, you know, I wish we could have a short list of twenty or thirty books, but you can't. You know, you have to whittle it down at the end of the day to six, and then to one winner. Um, we've announced the short list for this year. Um, it's going to be really, really hard and really tight to pull out um, to pull a winner out of that. But the the final judging is not for another couple of weeks, so I'll say no more about that. But um, but yeah, very very hard. Mm. Uh, standard, you know, has it got this and has it got that and has it got that? It's really it's about what are the stories that are powerful that have moved you that you've maybe not. What's is it doing you've not seen before? Is it talking about something, you know, a subject that you have seen before? But is it doing it in a new way and bringing it bringing in a new slot and that kind of stuff? It's it's a movable feast in terms of criteria. Really, what you do is you come to the table at the end of the day with, look, you know, out of all the books I've read, these are the ones that I think, I, you know, I, I could easily read these again. I would, I would recommend these to, you know, to other people. So over eighty books, that's yeah. a lot of reading. Do the jurors ever kind of read a bad one and just kind of quit halfway through? <laughs> uh, I'd be lying if you said you, if I said we read every single book all the way through. Because you do get some books that are just, it's just not happening. Because, pub, you know, publishers are like, publishers will send you, you know, every book that they've got that even remotely looks like science fiction. And, you know, we had books submitted this year that had science fiction-y sounding titles, but when you started reading them, they just weren't science fiction. And you get a fair number of, of fantasy books submitted because people, you know, the people who work at the publishers who pack the books up and send them to you don't necessarily differentiate between the two oh. so box and send them to you and so you pull you know you open that box and there's a bunch of books in there and you look at it and there's maybe i don't know say there's 10 books you might have six that are actually fantasy novels and you could just put them to one side so yep there's a dragon on the cover and it doesn't count <laughs> 
not quite as cut and dried as that usually, but but sometimes it is. But then, you know, that that said, you know, I've discovered some fantastic authors by being sent the wrong books, and uh, and I've sort of read it, and I thought, well, that's not science fiction, but I'm going to read that because it sounds fantastic. Yeah. So so you know, you put it to one side, and 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 you you read it, and you think, well, that was a happy accident, you know. Very cool. All right. Well, it's been great chatting with you. Yeah. Um, now, before we go, could you please let our listeners know where they can find you online and your work online? Well, you can find me through sci-fi-london.com. Uh, I have a blog at um, justplot.com, which has only recently kind of gotten off the ground. So, because time and blogging, not you know, not easy bedfellows. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter either at justplot or at swinefever. Okay, great. Okay, and is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to mention about the book? No, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, buy my book. That would be the thing that I really. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Very, very happy if you buy my book, Writing the Science Fiction Film by Robert Grant. Yeah, it's a very good book. It's a very entertaining book. Yeah. It's on all good booksellers, in stores now, and directly from <laughs> Easy Publishing. Hey. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Michael Weezy Publishing, yes. Yes. MWP.com, right? They're really wonderful. All right, well, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Yes, thank you. No problem at all. Thanks for asking me. It's been good fun. Hi, I'm Ben Bays, executive producer of Aiden 5, the web series, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Robert for taking the time to chat with us, and we wish him luck on his book. If you're wanting to write a sci-fi film, we do highly recommend his book. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Next week, we speak with the cast and crew of the comedy series Chop Saki Boom, which I think just might be our largest interview yet. So tune in next week to see what kind of shenanigans we get ourselves into as we talk about additions, kung fu, web series, zodiac signs, and nude scenes. (laughs) And don't forget, you can always check out all of our past episodes of Genretainment in the archives at scifipulseradio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel, like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. And please share, like, and comment on our episodes to show us you want more episodes. Now a big thanks from us to all of you out there for listening to us. Until next time.